for the trip. I will miss you. And I'd like to encourage not only that, but also this is an important time for everyone here to work hard in helping each other. And uh, I think that's something that needs to be emphasized whenever uh, somebody's going to be away for a while that leaves a void of whatever that person is doing. And there's just a lot of people who have various kinds of needs for encouragement and help in different ways. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to be doing pretty well spiritually and to just sort of relax. We feel pretty good about ourselves. We think we're going in the right direction and sort of ignore the various kinds of needs for help, for encouragement, for strength, for companionship, for teaching and edification that other brothers and sisters have. And these kinds of times are special opportunities for everyone to pitch in and to work toward helping each other. And uh, that's certainly true at this time. There are a number of people who have various kinds of needs. And uh, we need to reach out, listen, and seek to help. Look at Judges chapter 17. We have been seeing the ver- these, these cycles in the book of Judges. The cycle of unfaithfulness, God raising up a nation to oppress, the people crying out for salvation, and God raising up a deliverer to save them. And they remain faithful for a short time and then go back into that cycle again. And really those cycles, the main part of the book of Judges ended at the end of chapter 16. In my view, chapters 17 to 21, the last five chapters of Judges, are like appendices to the book of Judges. They really uh, relate to big events that occurred during the time period of the book of Judges and that sort of epitomize what happened in the book. And so we're going to look at part of one of those uh, this morning. These two appendices that are contained in chapters 17 to 21 are not necessarily in chronological order. They don't necessarily occur chronologically after the events of the first 16 chapters. I think there can be debate about when they occurred, but they're sort of like supplementary material that tells us what was really happening in the time period of the book of Judges. Would you look with me at Judges chapter 17 and verse 1? Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. What a what a story. Micah, this woman's son, 
had stolen from her 1,100 pieces of silver. That ought to ring a bell with you if you've been following along in the book of Judges. That's the amount each of the Philistines lord, Philistine lords offered Delilah to discover Samson's secret for his strength. Now, Micah stole this amount from his mother. It short, sort of shows you how bad the Israelites are becoming. Delilah was a foreigner who sold out for 1,100 pieces of silver from each Philistine lord. Micah's an Israelite who robs it. He's, both of them, in a sense, sold out a family member for a curse, but in Delilah's case, she just sold out her boyfriend. In Micah's case, he sold out his mother. The Israelites are becoming more like the Philistines. In fact, in some ways, maybe worse than the Philistines. His mother evidently pronounced some kind of a curse. Something like, may God condemn whoever stole my 1,100 pieces of silver. And when she said that, Micah heard her. I assume that he believed that that curse would come true. That he would, in fact, be cursed because of what his mother said for having taken the money. And so he tells her, it was me. I'm bringing your money back. Well, she doesn't want to have her son cursed. Even though she pronounced that, for one thing, her son is brought the money back. And for another thing, he's her son. I'm assuming she didn't know it was her son that had taken it. You don't normally think you've been robbed by your own children. And uh, so she immediately says, Blessed be my son by the Lord. She tries to reverse the curse by changing it into a blessing. And she does something else to try to cause Micah to be blessed. She dedicates the silver to making images so that it would, I guess, help Micah to be more religious. And maybe that will cause him to be blessed. She has the silver dedicated to making a graven image and a molten image. It shows you how far away from the Lord the people have gotten. She's trying to make her son blessed and not cursed. But two books earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 27... And in verse 15, cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. She actually, by trying to bless her son, puts him under God's curse. That's even worse than her own. She wholly dedicates this 1,100 sil- pieces of silver to making these images. But did you notice once she actually got around to uh, investing the money in the images, how much of it she spent for that? Just 200 pieces. I'm wondering what she did with the other 900 pieces. I'm sort of guessing that when it came right down to spending the money for that, she didn't want to invest that much. And so she kept 900 pieces for herself and just spent the 200 to make the image as well. And view of the fact of what she was doing with it, maybe that was the best thing. Micah, for his part, takes the images and sets himself up a really nice worship center. He uh, gets an ephod and various household idols, and, and he even takes one of his own sons, and he consecrates him as priest. So he's got a, a, a furnished, a well-equipped place for him to be able to come and worship. He's a really religious, spiritual kind of a guy. 
Of course, in a very wrong sort of way, we understand. Well, that's just the first half of the story. Look at verse 7, actually about the first quarter of the story, because chapter 18, we'll consider when I come back from Brazil, Lord willing, finishes out the story. But chapter 17, 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I might find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite agreed to live with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Seeing I have a Levite as priest. So now you've got this uh, traveling Levite. We actually find out in the end of chapter 18 what his name was. His name was Jonathan. Jonathan was a Levite that was residing in Bethlehem of Judah. Now it's not uncommon for the Levites to be residing in various tribes. In fact, that's the way God set it up. Most tribes gave four cities for the Levites to reside in. The interesting thing, though, is Bethlehem was not one of those cities. He was actually already not residing in one of the cities that the Levites were supposed to. And then he leaves from there and he starts uh, his travels. He, I think, was looking for a good opportunity. He was not like Abraham, who was called by God to set out for an unknown destination. He's just sort of uh, looking, I think, for probably some improvement in his career position. After all, he's a Levite. He's supposed to, uh, you know, work in various religious sorts of uh, things. And so he's going to uh, perhaps hit the employment agencies in this, these various towns. I don't know, but he comes into contact with Micah. Now, Micah saw this as an opportunity to really upgrade his religious worship center. He's had one of his own sons as priest, but now he's a Levite. You know, I mean, that's really the priests were supposed to come from Levi, and, and he's got an opportunity here. He can actually get a legitimate Levite to be his priest. And so he drafts a proposal that the Levite sort of liked the sound of. He offers him stable employment, a salary of ten pieces of silver a year, a clothing allowance, and room and board. If he'll become the priest here in his shrine. And the Levite liked the idea. He agreed to the contract. And so now Micah has a Levite and his priest. He says, you know, become a father to me. And uh, as a priest, but then he actually treated him like his own son. He almost became like a part of the family, really. And uh, served as the, uh, as the priest in this uh, center. Micah thinks, verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. He thought having a Levite as priest would sort of make his sanctuary more legitimate and that God would definitely bless him. He had a very mechanical view of God. 
You know, uh, having a Levite as your priest is sort of like having a good luck charm in your back pocket. It's just going to make things go well for you because God's going to be happy about that. Well, there's some lessons that I think we need to get from this. You know, you can learn a lot from bad examples, and this surely is one. I think you can see here the result of the influence of the people of the land, the Canaanites, on the Israelites. They have started to invent their own religion and think that God is pleased. Micah thinks, and Micah's mother thinks, that making these shrines, these idols, and setting up a nice center for worship and ordaining a Levite as priest that God's going to like that. We are in a culture that would have thought the same thing. That would have viewed this positively. That would have thought, well, well, this is great. Why now Mike has turned from thief to a spiritual man while he's out there worshiping all the time. While he's investing money, even getting it, uh, uh, his very own priest for that. Well, isn't that a great thing? And, and there's a lot of people in our day who would say, you better not knock that. Well, well who are you to say that, that one religion is better than another? Well, this religion works very nicely for Micah. You, you ought to be proud of it. I got an email this week from uh, somebody in, in Brazil who was objecting to an article I had written, basically saying that Christ was the only way to God and that people in non-Christian religions don't have a way to God outside of the Lord. And, and this person was saying, well, well, that's just really judgmental. Who are you to say that somebody in a non-Christian religion can't, can't worship God and serve him just as well as you can? Well, you know, that's pretty well the way people think today. It's the way they thought back here. They didn't have, they were not following God's principles. They were following the, the Canaanite ideas. And you know, one image is pretty well as good as another. And so they, they were influenced by this Canaanite idea of just, you know, any type of religion's okay. We really need to watch that. It's very easy for us to feel that way. It's very easy for us to get to thinking, well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't like to do it that way, but they're good people and they're sincere and, and, and you know, they have just their own way about it. Well, if their way is not God's way, if our way is not God's way, then it's not the right way. There's a right and wrong. God establishes that. You can see the influence of the Canaanites also in how this Levite seemed to view his service to God as sort of a profession. You know, he's looking for a good place of employment. You know, he likes the deal that Micah cuts him. And we'll see in the next chapter when a little better deal comes along, he doesn't hesitate to... Uh, Leave Micah in the lurch and go for that one. This is a professional decision on Jonathan's part, as it was on Micah's part. And you know, a lot of people today think that way. It just really shocks me to see, even among brethren, so much of a professional attitude toward preachers and preaching. I get various sorts of things by mail from churches and bulletins and newspapers and things of that nature. 
And you see so much emphasis on, you know, churches are, are looking for a preacher. And so they write a job description. And they ask for a resume and maybe a sermon tape. And, uh, you know, the prospective candidate, they've got a, a salary range. And, uh, you know, some kind of educational background that's needed. And so the, the, the preacher uh, candidate and then the church... They, they had a salary and contract negotiations and they signed the contract. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing any of that? <laughs> you know, can you imagine that being the way Jesus looked at those things? Can you imagine one of the prophets of God in the Old Testament doing that? I mean, you know, when Amaziah the priest told Amos, you ought to go on down to Judah, they'll pay you better for your prophesying. Amos said, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of the prophet, and I'm not doing this for money. That's because God told me to say this. When we start thinking of our service to God in terms of profession and career and advancement and salary and resume and contracts and that sort of thing, I think we're being influenced by the Canaanites just like Micah and Jonathan were. And then you can see the influence of the Canaanites in how Micah viewed God sort of in a commercial way. You know, I've, I've got my ticket punched now. God's got to bless me now. I've got my own shrine and I've got a Levite as priest. You know God will be happy with that. Isn't that a shame? It's kind of sick, isn't it? It's, it's seeing God as somebody to be manipulated. You pull these strings and out comes these blessings. As Gary Henry would say, God is no celestial Santa Claus. This is not some special machine to get us what we want. We serve God because we love God and because it's right. We don't see this as, well, if I do this, then, then probably I'll get a better job <laughs> or something like that. So we see the influence of the Canaanites, but I'll tell you we see a second thing. In this whole wicked scene. And that is, we see the, the, the result of following our feelings instead of following God's authority. Did you notice 17.6? That's a key to this whole appendix section. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They were doing what they saw as right. What they felt like was right. When we do what seems right to us, we're almost always wrong. Because our ways and God's ways are so different. What seems right to us is usually not what God says is right. There's an objective standard of authority. And it's God's word and God's will. And when we abandon that to do what feels right, to do what looks right, what seems right, we've missed it. That's such a serious problem in our culture because, again, people are always following their feelings. Why? This feels right to me. This seems like what God would want. How would I know what God wants by what seems right? I am not God. And there's just a whole bunch of stuff God has revealed I would have never come up with based upon what looks right to me and what feels right to me. We've got to go back to the objective standard of God's word and evaluate everything 
on the basis of what God says and not how we feel. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And look at the terrible disasters to which that led. And so we can learn a lot negatively by, the, by Micah and Jonathan and, and this situation. And if you will try to remember Judges chapter 17, maybe reread it again before the next time uh, we talk. We'll continue the story in chapter 18 and uh, matters only get worse, as they always do when we do what's right in our own eyes. If you're willing to come to the Lord and do what's right in his eyes this morning, we encourage you to come while we stand in front.